Welcome to Dr. Doctor. We are the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. He is Dr. John Traveline, a pulmonary critical care specialist from Philadelphia who also specializes in sleep and its many discontents. So before everyone dozes off, we'd like to get to some medical news, right? About sleep. About sleep. Going to be a lot of sleep jokes in this one. I'm going to try to keep the dad jokes at a minimum. (laughs) I want my children to listen to their father (laughs) and the rest of our listeners too. So anyway, uh, you know, I like to go to data and I found on the CDC website, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, looking by county, you know, they have this map of the U.S. by county, different color codes on what percentage of people get less than seven hours of sleep a night. I'm looking at this map, Tom, and I've got theories already. Uh-oh, I can't wait to hear this. <laughs> but So uh, the overall numbers for the country is just over a third. 35% of American adults do not get at least seven hours of sleep a night, which is thought to be the typical minimum to be well-rested to go into your day. Yeah, and, you know, two out of thirds ain't bad, but... That means a third of people are sleeping terrible. Right. And it's pretty even between men and women. Uh, It's fairly even across the ages. Actually, uh, the worst is between 25 and 55, you know, closer to 39%. And then once you're over 65, only a quarter of people are sleeping less than seven hours a night. But uh, we all have theories uh, for why that is. It's interesting in the data by race or ethnicity, whites and Hispanics uh, we're just under the national average, but above blacks, 46%, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders, 46% getting less than seven hours a night, almost half. That's uh, incredible. And I, I was surprised to see such a difference based on race ethnicity. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think it would line up so much. I wouldn't have either. But then you go to the map. Yeah, the and map I thought was telling. And um, what, 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 why don't you explain what we're seeing on this map that's on the CDC website? This map, as you guys have probably seen with different types of, of map, is broken down. It looks to be by county. Yes, and it's from the 2010 census data, so millions of data points. And looking at this map, it's all color-coded, lighter colors, getting better sleep, darker colors, getting worse sleep. And I'm looking at, you know, Georgia. Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Indiana, and Kentucky, the whole eastern time zone, uh, hinting at my theory, is dark colors, much worse sleep. And the further you move west, I mean, there's little pockets around big cities where people get poor sleep. But uh, the further you move west, the sleep gets better and better. And even the big cities on the west coast don't seem to get as poor hours of sleep compared to the east coast. And why do you think that is, Andrew? I'm telling you, I'm thinking this is football season. I'm thinking it's Monday night football. You got, this, you got two Monday night games. You got a Sunday night game now. Every late show, these things are all filmed on the West Coast. Right. And if you don't get done with something till midnight, 1 a.m., we all start work, you know, across the country at about the same time in the morning. And so it's really unfair to everybody living on the East Coast. They're naturally going to get an hour or two less if there's somebody watching any TV. Their, their TV shows are. Now, I thought that people were watching less live TV these days than ever before. And that That is probably true, but for the, the people that are, are into TV at all, I mean, the, the evening, one of the things I talk to a lot of people about sleep, you get through your day, you get your work done, all the stuff that needs to be done, you get the kids to bed, <sighs> I have finally a few minutes yes, for myself. Yes. And then you have a critical decision to make. Do I make a healthy choice and go straight to bed and get enough sleep, but then I have no free time? (laughs) Or do I cut into my sleep to have a few precious minutes to discuss the day with my spouse, to watch a good football game, to do anything else? And so many people are trying to get just a little bit more time out of their day. So also on this website, besides this wonderful color-coded map that looks like the the eastern third of the U.S. is going to fall in the ocean because it's so much heavier and darker in color. We move to different health-related items. You know, health is all interconnected. You can't take one piece out uh, 
and uh, do everything else right and still have a, a healthy life. So, for instance, we on the show talk about exercise in different ways, exercise in the brain, exercise in the heart. We've talked about a healthy diet. Well, now we're going to talk about sleep, and sleep is related to those things. So if you look, obesity is actually higher in those who sleep less than seven hours versus more than those who sleep more than seven hours. Um, the same thing, not surprisingly, with uh, smokers. A current smoker is more likely to get too little sleep than someone who doesn't smoke. Alcohol drinkers, there's actually, interestingly, no difference in whether or not they get enough sleep. But uh, then you look at certain chronic conditions. All of these are associated with less sleep. The less sleep you have, the more likely you are to have a heart attack, the more likely you are to have a stroke, to have asthma, to have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, to have arthritis, depression, chronic kidney disease, and diabetes. You know, the only thing on this list of horrible diseases that wasn't correlated with less sleep was cancer. And that just barely so. There was just a, barely. It's it close. just lined up. Yeah. Um, but it's amazing. You know, the COPD, twice, twice as likely. Depression, 50% more likely. Tom, you tell me all these things that are going to happen if I don't get enough sleep, and I like to sleep. Why, why don't people sleep? That's a good question. I think it goes back to habits. You know, we, we develop habits when we're young, and unless there is a big life-changing event or, or like, like a move to someplace else, we tend to keep those habits. Something has to come in and make us decide to change a habit. I was just looking at some data for high school students. We, we say that adolescents generally need more sleep than adults. Everybody knows that. They do need. Their brains do. Their brains need more sleep. And the goal is really 8 to 10 hours for adolescents. So looking at data from 2007 to 2013 among high schoolers, the number of kids, the percentage of kids who slept less than 8 hours, less than ideal, was actually 68%. I was uh, shocked overall, and it gets worse with each year in high school. Starting at 60% do not get enough sleep in ninth grade to 77% do not get enough sleep in 12th grade. Yeah, that, This is horrifying. Oh, I think it's terrible because if we have an idea of what these kids need, we've, we've got a system, um, our current livelihood in America, basically, that's got the vast majority of kids not getting enough sleep. And you got to think not only what kind of habits does that set them up for later in life, but how does that even lend itself to their academic performance, extracurricular activities, you know? Yeah, those who sleep better get better grades. And as a little bonus, something I learn usually when I'm at the microphone, I am sipping on a Diet Coke. I no longer am drinking Diet Coke because of a study that came out earlier this month in September in JAMA Internal Medicine. I don't know if Andrew's familiar with this study or if I told him about it. Uh, and no, it's not anywhere in the notes, Andrew. <laughs> uh, I, I Actually, I think I, I happened on this recently, and I was really surprised. But I'll let you, I'll let you spill the beans in this one. So uh, I drink, they compared in half a million people drinking uh, diet sodas and non-diet sodas. And they looked at all-cause mortality, you know, over a period of, I think it was 16 years. And, uh, and these were in European countries. And what they found is that all-cause mortality was higher in those who averaged more than two uh, diet sodas a day versus those who drank less than one per month. And, what they f and they found that the data was far worse for diet soda drinkers than full sugar soda drinkers. Why is that? This was just a, a correlation study. Okay, so it's hard to say. But they did try to eliminate um, you know, different confounding variables. And what they demonstrated is that all-cause mortality, that means dying earlier, was 26% higher in those who drank more than two diet sodas a day versus those who didn't drink any. That's a lot. And mortality due to cardiovascular diseases was 52% higher. Wow. As soon as I read that, right after my morning prayer time, I said, that's it. No more Diet Coke. Oh, man. And I, I drank like three to six a day. So, uh, yeah, true confessions on the air. I know I, know I can't get absolution here, whether it was a sin or not. Probably not. But um, <laughs> I stopped drinking right away. I had a dull headache for two days. It went away. So that was something that, you know, 
how does this relate to sleep? Well, of course, people would drink something like that to stay up, although it always put me to sleep. And I want to ask, uh, you know, Dr. Traveline, you know, does caffeine affect people differently? Because some people use it to avoid sleep, yeah. uh, caffeine. Uh, some people it calms and some people it wires up. My, my wife, when we were driving home from the airport recently uh, after midnight, we had a couple hour drive to go. She had one Diet Coke. She was wired for the next four and a half hours, couldn't get to bed. Oh, wow. So it, caffeine definitely affects different people uh, differently. And that was her one Diet Coke per month. So I, I think she's safe with that. So just a, a little uh, public service announcement to you listening. You can look up the data, JAMA, Internal Medicine, uh, the Diet Soda and Regular Soda Study. But before we go to the break and bring on our guest, we have a trivia question. There was a national survey performed by the National Sleep Foundation. Yes, there is such a thing. Back in 2005. <laughs> What percentage of married couples revealed that they sleep in separate beds or separate rooms? Not because they don't like each other, just because they want to sleep better. Usually related to sounds, smells, or movements by their spouse. We'll be back for more after the break on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with our special guest today, Dr. John Traveline. He's not only a doctor, he's also a deacon incarnated in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. He's a professor of thoracic medicine and surgery in the Lewis Katz School of Medicine at Temple University in Philly. He earned his medical degree in Philly at Jefferson Medical College, did internal medicine training at the University of Maryland, and he did his pulmonary critical care and sleep training at Temple University. We've had him on the show in the past. He was actually in the 10th episode of Dr. Doctor in early 2018 because he was the co-editor of a book called Catholic Witness in Healthcare. John, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you, Tom. It's, it's nice to, uh, to be back here. Thank you. So, sleep and its many discontents. The simple question is, what the heck is sleep? Oh, great question. Sleep is a, a normal necessary biologic process, a state of being. We get somewhat metaphysical about it. Uh, Please state do. Of being that, is, that is characterized by essentially non-wakefulness, a tempor temporary state, if you will, of non-wakefulness, a very normal biologic and extremely important process. John, why do we sleep? Why do we have to sleep? Sleep, again, is part of a normal biologic process that, we believe is related to giving giving the body and in particular our very complex brain uh, a time to uh, restore itself, uh, sort of a time for uh, restoration, a technical term that is sometimes used to have uh, in, in sleep medicine is to have consolidation of memory, um, um, it's a it's a basic uh, sort of maintenance to to the many biologic physiologic processes. So, what is going on chemically or electrically in the brain when we sleep? Do do we know? Uh, uh, and some people say that we're getting rid of toxins in the brain. Is that true? Yeah, I, I'm not I'm not so sure that that's uh, that's a, a, an accurate or a, a, a way of understanding what sleep is. Um, uh, I mean, there are a whole, a whole multitude of, of biologic, physiologic processes occurring within the brain, neurophysiologic processes occurring uh, that are very particular to the sleep state. Um, I, I guess I would see it mostly, largely as a, as a time for the brain to sort of um, come offline and um, uh, be restored, you know, uh, is the best way of saying it. So to sort of re-energize, recharge is maybe another way of, of thinking about it. So I've read that sleep deprivation will actually kill you sooner than food deprivation. Is this true? Mm. Well, it, you know, there is some truth to that. Again, it, it's a normal biologic process. It's extremely important. So a whole host of, of, of problems, medical conditions that flow from or caused by inadequate, poor sleep insufficient sleep, a whole host of, of cardiovascular, metabolic, immunologic derangements that, um, that are associated with poor sleep quality, uh, insufficient sleep. So in a way, 
uh, yeah, sleep deprivation, certainly over a long period of time or repeatedly, um, has very negative health effects. I, I was just uh, looking up a piece of information for people who were talking about sleep deprivation. The automatic question I have is, how long has someone gone without sleeping? And the answer is, Eleven days. Eleven days. Tom, no. Tom, wow. how do you know all this stuff? <laughs> so it will kill. I don't you, sleep enough. I'm always reading. <laughs> Eleven wow. days. So as a, as a small aside for people who are wondering, that's that's the record. Wow. So 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 John, you know, one of the main ways that people avert sleep in our society is caffeine. But I've noticed that caffeine keeps some people awake, but not all. Do you do you understand why that is? Yeah, I. You know, I often hear that in, in, in many patients, I'll, you know, as I may counsel them um, uh, appropriately about avoiding caffeine or caffeinated beverages, particularly prior to going to sleep, uh, I'll often hear uh, the retort, oh, I can drink coffee, it doesn't bother me, I have no problem sleeping. Um, I'm not so sure that that's accurate. Um, in fact, I know it's not accurate. People may not have the perception that they are awake after drinking caffeine at night, let's say before they go to bed, but we know that caffeine as a drug, if you will, has very predictable effects um, on, on sleep. And if, even if a person doesn't perceive that they're awake or they're not sleeping, it's disrupting the quality of the sleep as it relates to the, the normal processes that go on uh, when 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 someone is asleep, so, it's very disruptive to what we call the sleep architecture, if you will, the sort of the stages that one goes through in normal sleep. So, if even if they are asleep, so to speak, and they perceive themselves as being asleep, the quality is not very good. Correct. Well, let's Correct. talk about it. You brought it up, sleep architecture. There's something called the sleep cycle. What should our listeners know about that? Well, sleep cycle basically, without getting too technical, has to do with when we fall asleep, going through very predictable, normal stages of sleep. So the light stage sleep, if you will, stage one, a little bit deeper, stage two, deeper still, stage three and four. And these are stages of what we refer to as non-REM or non-rapid eye movement sleep. And, and REM sleep, yeah. rapid eye movement sleep, is then another state that's very distinct, very different than non-REM sleep, and uh, a period of, of going through the stages of non-REM and then a REM sleep period, that constitutes, if you will, one cycle. And then throughout the night, person is sleeping will cycle multiple times uh, through non-REM, REM, non-REM, REM, and so on. Now, I, Typically... I I heard yeah, from some um, some monks who sleep about uh, six uh, hours a night that they said a sleep cycle for them is about ninety minutes. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's that's correct. That's 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 for the for a normal adult. Um, that's that's about the normal duration of the sleep cycle. And so, um, I mean, there's obviously some variability in that ninety to to maybe close to two hours, but um, uh, that that is roughly. Roughly the case. We typically, normally, in terms of sleep architecture, normally could expect to have maybe four um, solid periods of REM sleep uh, a night. And the thought is, is that the REM component of that is the most restorative component, or yeah, the most exactly. As so, alluding to earlier about the restorative uh, properties of, of sleep and the importance, therefore, of it. Um, REM is a particularly uh, the, the restorative uh, portion of the sleep cycle. So if you're a parent and go into your child's bedroom when they're sleeping or you look at your spouse when they're sleeping, sometimes you might see their eyeballs moving under their eyelids, and that's that REM sleep. Why are the that's, eyeballs moving like crazy, John? Yeah, that's an interesting – it's just the, it's just the way we were made. Um, <laughs> it's uh, – yeah, it's um, – I don't. I don't have a good explanation for that, why that is. It certainly, uh, obviously, defines what we refer to as rapid eye movement sleep, um, and it's very interesting because the um, uh, in REM sleep we we undergo a paralysis of sorts. Right. The skeletal muscle, save the diaphragm, is 
is uh, is essentially paralyzed normally uh, in sleep. And and do you know any any cause for that or why that is? What that purpose it serves? I don't. Uh, that's a great question. Why that occurs? I, I don't know. Now is and is it, REM when we dream? That's what it's thought to be. I mean, I, I think there's it, dream uh, research is. is as you might imagine, it's particularly difficult <laughs> and hard to characterize. And uh, but it, it but it is typically held that REM is is also often referred to as dream sleep, um, uh, and it's felt to, to be where 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 dreaming or sleep mentation uh, is occurring. And do you have any idea? Does anybody have any idea the purpose of dreams? Um, it, you know, if we were alive, uh, what, a century or so ago, we, we might be trying to ask Sigmund Freud. To really <laughs> yeah. Please don't, please don't. Right now, no, no, no. <laughs> who really obviously popularized uh, dream analysis and uh, really brought attention to it. But um, why, why there's dreaming, I think, despite a lot of research and investigation and, and uh, speculation, both from a behavioral science, psychology, psychiatry, um, uh, you know, standpoint in their literature, as well as some in physiologic uh, investigations. I think it remains elusive as to why that is. John, so memory consolidation or, or something like that, um, it, it, it remains uh, ambiguous. Is, is it important for people who feel that they don't dream? Is that telling in some way? about their sleep architecture? I, I, I don't, um, you know, I can speculate that maybe it, it is, um, but I, I wouldn't be too, uh, uh, I wouldn't assert that too strongly. Uh, I do sometimes think, just in my practice, of uh, people that say that they never dream or have no perception of or re re recollection of dreaming, it does make me wonder, making the association of maybe REM sleep is down, is 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 um, impaired, uh, is limited, uh, that they don't have that normal uh, REM uh, percentage when they're asleep. But I, I don't make too much of that because I, I don't know that that's that's really accurate scientifically. Um, the other the other piece that I do sometimes uh, related to that is people that wake up and they seem to recall their dream, um, and we. We can get into certain uh, conditions of sleep disorder, breathing, for example. Sometimes think with a patient that the, the fact that they, they remember a dream suggests to me maybe that they're waking out of REM sleep because of a, a sleep disorder, breathing event, for Got example. It. Oh, interesting. And, and that's why they, they may recall, you know, the dream because they're in the middle of REM, which is a high risk, very unstable period of time. Um, so to say, for um, you know, with regard to sleep disordered breathing, how much sleep is enough sleep, and how much is too much? Yeah, um, you know, early early studies that looked at you know just normal, healthy young adults, uh, you know, sleep duration ranged between seven and a half, eight and a half hours. So that's I think where we typically say that you know eight hours of sleep is what is needed and is, quote, the normal. Um, but there are certainly extremes. I mean, there are short sleepers, so to, so to say, people that can get by with less than six hours, perhaps like, like some of the monks. Um, yes, um, they do. But, but then there are others that are on the other end of the spectrum, as you would imagine in any sort of biologic, uh, you know, uh, process yes. uh, with long, so-called long sleepers that may, may require... 10 hours or so of sleep. Um, in, in terms of the downside, do, uh, you know, negative effects of, of, uh, as it relates to sleep duration, I think the greater risk and concern is, is insufficient sleep. So, as I mentioned, um, I'm not, not really aware of sleeping too much um, as if we could. You know, that's another question, whether we could really you know, willfully sleep longer <laughs> if we wanted to um, is not really a question, is not really an issue. Certainly we can willfully not sleep, right? We can yes. force ourselves by all sorts of 
ways to to not sleep and and so insufficient sleep too little sleep is uh is a much bigger problem and and uh is of more concern from a health health effect john does does the sleep architecture change a bit as we get older uh, do we expect it, it, different types and amounts of sleep as we age we we do i mean a lot of good data looking at aging adults and 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 what happens with their sleep and and um and percentages uh, you know that architecture does change maybe less REM sleep what also changes is the phase of sleep so we'll find this um that as we get older we'll tend to fall asleep or the sleep pressure that is the drive to fall asleep tends to occur earlier um in in a in a day right in a in a, in a circadian um period um and so you you'll see elderly patients typically maybe getting to bed earlier because they're they they you know the so-called early birth special kind Got of there's it. a reason behind that right so For so, so john yeah. what is insomnia and, and what causes it big problem yeah, so insomnia refers to inability to sleep, right? And there are a multitude of causes. There's no there's no one single cause for why people have that. Um, it could range from you know acute insomnia, some very you know stressful event that has occurred that prevents someone um, you know from a psychological behavioral standpoint from falling asleep. Anxiety, worry about an event could certainly cause acute insomnia. Insomnia can be chronic and, and occur uh, over years, typically um, typically initiated by some acute traumatic event, for example, but then sort of becomes habitual and a person may for decades have difficulty sleeping. Um, one particular form of insomnia I, I, uh, I've always thought was interesting was so-called psychophysiologic insomnia. This is a this is fairly common insomnia where uh, patient, people will go to sleep and have in their in their bed and and have difficulty sleeping, and it it sort of creeps up on them in the sense that um, it doesn't happen right away, but because of poor sleep habits, they begin to associate sleeping. They they, um, they associate going to bed with sleeplessness. Uh-huh. And it's be, it's a behavior. That's the psycho, but the physiologic component is that because of this behavioral psychological association that's been established, then the physiology is impaired. So they go to bed, into their bedroom, and they can't sleep. So it's so it's, it's physiologic. So it's the habit the loop. Training. We talk about the habit loop having a, a yeah. trigger, yeah. a uh-huh. an action. Or, and then a reward. And typically the trigger is the bed, and for most people the action it means is sleep. But for them the trigger means not sleep, which not is really sleeping. messed right, up. Right, right. That's, that's the connection. So the strategy then to, to treat that is to try to break that. An interesting, an interesting clinical question to ask patients that may, you may suspect this is, is how about if you're on vacation? How about if you're uh, out traveling, you're at a meeting or something, and you're away, you're sleeping away from your home? Oh, I have no problem sleeping wow. at all. And again, it's the it's the environment, that particular environment of their bedroom, uh, where that association occurs. And so, uh, how do you break that, that, that cycle? Clinical then? clue. Well, um, it, it's a difficult one, but you get into um, um, so-called stimulus control. So, okay, you're going to go to you're going to go to bed when you, uh, you plan to go to bed, but after about 10 or 15 minutes, if you don't fall asleep, I want you to get out of bed. I want you to go into another room and um, do whatever. Uh, and once you feel like you're gonna, you're ready to go back to bed, uh, go back into your bedroom, lie down. Again, if you don't fall asleep within 10, 15 minutes, something like this, get out of bed, go in, do something else. So you're trying to disassociate um, that that connection. Um, John, we're going to take a quick break here and come back with much more on insomnia here at Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. John Traveline about sleep. John, I wanted to ask, as far as insomnia goes, we were talking about that last segment. 
how about some of these sleep aids? You know, both the over-the-counter sleep aids, uh, a common one would be melatonin and some of the prescription stuff. Is this a good idea? Do these things work? I mean, we're prone, we're prone to, to treat ourselves, right, to self-medicate <laughs> yes. um, on a whole variety of, of, of ailments and ills that we experience. And sleep certainly is a, insomnia is certainly a common one that, that will, many people find treating themselves. Um, I, you know, I think it's all over the place. I think there's a lot of variability in terms of what um, aids, over-the-counter aids, sleep aids that may work that people seem to, uh, to like and seem to, that seem to be effective for them, but the very same uh, has no effect in others. So it really is all over the map with regard to that. Melatonin has gotten a lot of, um, ha- has been of interest for many years um, in research. And, uh, but there too, um, there's a lot of variability uh, in its efficacy among people. It's, it's kind of um, data about it, and there are tons of data about it, are not really um, consistent. And what about the sedatives, the benzodiazepines, or even the sedating antihistamines? Do they help people sleep, or do they get you to sleep, but it's bad quality? Yeah, yeah, it's really the latter, particularly the antihistamines. I mean, it really disrupts sleep architecture. So even though it has a hypnotic effect or a somnogenic effect, um, it, it, it disrupts sleep architecture, so it's not a quality sleep. The benzos may be a little bit better, particularly some of the newer um, uh, agents, um, and, then, and then other hypnotics as well that are non-benzodiazepine uh, hypnotics tend to be a little gentler on sleep architecture, and they would be preferred. But, but it's not the, uh, and these are, these are often used for, for chronic insomnia, so long-term, but they're less than ideal for sure. Uh, treatment. So, um, John, we we often yeah. I was going to say, that if I may, sure. um, for, for chronic insomnia, we'll we'll really hold out cognitive behavioral therapy because <laughs> for chronic insomnia, there's often uh, a very um, uh, a big uh, role of uh, of uh, underlying and I'm not saying but psychiatric illness. But underlying, uh, you know, psychological um, uh, concerns that need to be addressed and are, are best addressed by that. John, what are the most common things Americans do to sabotage a good night's sleep? Far and away, the most common, I would say, is just the the, the technology that's accessible to people. The, the television early on, right? And, yes. And but then then computers and now the. Uh, uh, your tablets and phones and these sorts of things. And uh, and they could be very, uh, they are very disruptive to sleep. Even just the bright, the brightness of the screens and the, the blue light that's associated with many of these yes. electronic devices are very disruptive to sleep. They, 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 how they are is because they have the effect of, of, of promoting wakefulness, of keeping the person looking at these devices or being exposed to these. So how uh, long before going to bed should someone put these devices or their television away if they want to get... Oh, I would would say at least an hour, but some might say even up to two hours. Wow. I don't know how... how realistic that is from just what I observed in my own family and elsewhere in talking with others. You know, John, you bring up technology as a big thing to, to promote good sleep, avoiding technology before bed. What are some of the other parts of good sleep hygiene? What does that look like? Yeah. So avoid, we mentioned earlier caffeine and the, 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 the negative effects that that has on and sleep. How many hours before? <laughs> yeah. So I, caffeine, I think, has a half-life of maybe four to six, six hours, something like that. So I usually recommend having no caffeinated beverages uh, really, in, in the afternoon, maybe maybe at a lunchtime uh, would be fine. Maybe early afternoon, but but for sure not not after 3 p.m. Um, so avoiding caffeine, cigarette smoking, uh, the nicotine as a uh, stimulant effect. Um, proper diet, not eating too close to going to bed. That's not a good thing. How much time Exercises again? Uh, at least I would say at least three or four hours. 
Okay. Yeah. Um, diet, you know, a good balanced diet for many things is important, no less for sleep. And one of the important elements of sleep hygiene, I would say that um, we really try to stress is regularity of going to bed, regularity and getting up uh, out of bed in the morning. And, 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 you know, obviously there are a lot of exceptions. Our lives just uh, don't always permit that rigidity rigidity of, um, you know, of, of schedule, but to the extent that we can do that to go to bed at the regular, at a regular time or close to a regular time and uh, getting out of bed uh, routinely at a regular time is, is important as well. Okay, John, the other big sleep problem of the, the big two, I think, besides insomnia would be sleep apnea. And it, I don't know if it's just being better diagnosed, if it's becoming more common or both, but what is it? And, and tell the audience what they need to know. Yeah, sleep apnea, we're commonly, uh, we're talking typically about so-called obstructive sleep apnea. And what that refers to is apnea is simply referring to no breathing, no airflow, no breathing uh, when one is at sleep. And the cause of it is an obstruction, an obstruction, a blockage in the upper airway where air comes in and out uh, of, uh, into our lungs. So obstructive sleep apnea is this condition where once one falls asleep, there's a narrowing or even a complete obstruction of the upper airway um, the, that prevents breathing from occurring. Now, we're made beautifully, <laughs> and the body in its wisdom, the body in its wisdom, if it's not getting air, even though it's asleep, the brain wakes up. It arouses, the person wakes up, uh, the obstruction is immediately relieved, breathing occurs, and the person goes back to sleep. The problem is that this then may repeatedly happen 5, 10, 20, 30 times an hour on average. The obstruction lasting for, we'd say technically, uh, for at least 10 seconds. Um, and and because of this repeated awakening, falling asleep, waking, falling asleep, sleep is very disruptive. There's zero quality of sleep. <laughs> person the next day is, is falling asleep, um, uh, driving, uh, on, that's, the, that's among the more, most serious consequences, or just falling asleep at their desk or, yes. or at their job. John, when, yeah. when somebody has sleep apnea like you've described, do they always snore? Snoring is probably the most common uh, symptom, if it could be, if it could be elicited in patients with sleep apnea, I would say. Yeah, I, I often say that almost everybody, you know, you don't say uh, everyone, but almost everybody with sleep apnea, I would say, is snore, snores, but the converse of that is not the case. Everyone that snores does not have sleep apnea. Good point. So what causes the obstruction in, inside our mouths and our upper airways? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, so many things could contribute to that. Um, we, we typically think of, of obstructive sleep apnea occurring in very obese people with a lot of subcutaneous, we say, fatty deposits in and around their airway and their necks are thick, they have a large collar size, men, for example. Um, and that narrows, all of that excess tissue narrows the airway uh, diameter. But we recognize that sleep apnea um, occurs in, in normal weight people, uh, normal, um, uh, you know, BMI, for example, and it's not excess fat, by, uh, but yet there's sleep apnea. So um, other factors um, have, may, may have to do with um, uh, just the way they're made, right? Uh, craniofacial abnormalities, a high arched palate or recessed uh, lower uh, jaw, for example. These are anatomic uh, variations, just the way uh, we are made uh, so differently, uh, that may, again, have the effect of narrowing the airway. But I think, I think fundamentally, even in all of those cases, if there are these uh, anatomic changes or excess weight, fundamentally, there's a hypotonia or a excess um, tendency of the muscle that um, that keeps the airway open, that, that uh, 
serves to dilate the upper airway. There's a fundamental abnormality in that muscle that um, makes it sloppy or less tense, less uh, keeping the airway open. John, does, um, does the incidence of sleep apnea seem to be getting worse? Um, I, I think for sure we, we clearly for the past couple of decades have been diagnosing it more, but I think it also is objectively um, becoming uh, is more prevalent and the incidence is is increasing. And, and to the extent that that's tracking uh, one of the more common uh, associative causes that is obesity to the degree that that is increasing in the epidemic proportion, so too sleep apnea is occurring. And there's some interesting data from global uh, epidemiology looking at now uh, once developing countries who are now uh, you know not so and um, and you're seeing a rise in obesity in these these countries new you're also seeing concurrent um, incidents of uh, sleep at obstructive sleep John apnea. why should one of our listeners suspect that they might have sleep apnea excessive sleepiness during the daytime I think is very uh, common and that should prompt uh, investigation. They're falling asleep at their desk at work or, um, or at school. Uh, they're falling asleep when um, uh, they don't want to be falling asleep. They, they may also be clued into it if someone with whom they sleep, a spouse, for example, notices that they are snoring loudly at night and then there's a period of no noise no snoring, and on uh, you know closer inspection, they appear to be not breathing. What that other health prog problems will occur because of sleep apnea if it's not treated? Yeah, so sleep apnea is one cause for just poor sleep quality, as I was mentioning earlier, associated with a whole host of problems. Such so as? diabetes, for example, other metabolic derangements, but um, diabetes is a very prominent one. Um, cardiovascular, uh, neurovascular problems, hypertension among those in the cardiovascular category associated with um, uh, sleep apnea in particular. Uh, immunologic problems, interesting studies looking at um, uh, night shift workers, for example. Now, this is just because of insufficient sleep, but tended to have higher rates of, um, of primary cancer. So, so interesting, a whole host wow. of things. So, so even beyond just being tired, if you might have sleep apnea and you don't get it treated, you could be working yourself into other major health problems. Absol absolutely. Ta absolutely. Talking about treatment, John, what are the options for patients who need sleep apnea treatment? So it's, 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 it's fundamentally that obstruction of, to airflow. So the, the most, the, the cornerstone treatment, the most effective treatment is something called continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP. And what this is, is a device that um, is administered through a mask that the person will wear when they go to sleep. And what it does is provide a continuous flow of air to help pneumatically, we say, stent the airway open so that the floppiness of those muscles that tend to want to collapse and obstruct the airway is prevented by this continuous flow of air. And John, what about mouthpieces for certain patients with sleep apnea? Yeah, very maybe very effective in, in patients with sleep apnea. It tends to be more effective in people with milder forms yes. of sleep apnea. Um, people who may have some subtle anatomic, um, um, uh, uh, you, know, uh, you know, condition the way they are, where they're, um, where a mouthpiece by advancing the mandible or the lower jaw or, um, or, or moving a tongue forward, for example, will uh, relieve the obstruction. So John, in our last uh, few minutes, I'd like you to see if you can give us a quick suggestion on how to best adjust to crossing multiple time zones with traveling. <laughs> That's oh a good boy, one. there's no good. You know, getting up and, in, in, uh, you know, getting up and moving around, um, diet being, um, having a good diet before and through the, uh, through the travel, um, being well hydrated, 
Um, these are important uh, strategies to try to ameliorate the uh, the jet lag phenomenon. And does the body ever get used to third shift work? Um, you know, it, does, it depends on you. You know, the level of, uh, of of getting used to that you want to say. I mean, certainly people do that their whole career, and they and you must say that they're they're kind of used to it. They even say themselves they're used to it. But uh, but you know, as a purist, in some ways. I think biologically, fundamentally, I don't think I don't think the human organism biologically um, really gets used to it in that you know to that okay. degree. Is there a best sleep position? Um, not in particular. Uh, uh, whatever is most comfortable and seems to promote uh, one's sleep. Uh, there is something called positional sleep apnea where some people will see have only obstructive sleep apnea when they're lying on their back. Sure. And, and for those people, we'll offer positional therapy, devices that are used to prevent them from sleeping on their back. And that's a treatment that we'll employ for positional sleep apnea. But but in terms, there's no one position or optimal position for John, people in general. For for all of our listeners who want to sleep better, what is a good resource for them to go to to learn more about good sleep habits? I, you know, I would suggest two. One, uh, the National Sleep Foundation, which is national, obviously, um, is an extremely good resource uh, for for the lay public sleepfoundation.org is their address and is an extremely good resource for for healthcare professionals for physicians and others who uh, may want um, want that level of information the American Academy of Sleep Medicine aasm.org uh, extremely well put together website with a whole wealth of information Deacon Dr. John Traveling, thank you so much for being with us today on Dr. Doctor. You're welcome, Tom. Thank you. And we'll be back with the answer to the trivia question after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor. For all of our listeners who have not dozed off yet, we have the answer to the trivia question. Yes, in a national survey by the aforementioned National Sleep Foundation, what percentage of married couples reveal that they sleep in separate beds or rooms in an effort to sleep better? This I was surprised by the answer to this. Surprised because it was low or high? I thought it was high. You know, we, we love, I love Lucy in our house. Yes, yes, And yes. It, the seasons started, they were in separate beds and they migrated to the same bed. No way! Yeah, throughout, throughout the course of I Love Lucy. Oh, they get closer and, and closer. And wow. now history is reverting, it sounds like. People yeah, so it, it revealed 25%. So just one in four couples uh, revealed, now maybe it was more, but that's how many revealed <laughs> that they actually slept in separate rooms. Now with the rise of king-size beds, maybe it feels like we're sleeping in separate beds. Uh, but that is the reality of today. One in four. And I, I read somewhere that people are thinking that's going to continue expanding, that the the new homes that are being built, custom homes, a lot of people are building in extra sleep space in the master, like a separate master bedroom. Yes, just That's in, incredible. incredible. Yes. So, um, you know, I found a little, a few little tidbits on what happens if um, you're, you're exercising, trying to get in better shape, but you're not sleeping enough. And this was fascinating that if you're sleeping less than six hours a night while, while dieting, you're more likely to lose muscle than fat. Oh, interesting. That that was amazing. And that if you sleep less than eight hours a night, your stress hormone cortisol makes you store more fat in your stomach. Wow. So if you're trying to, to lose muscle. And then sleeping less than eight hours a night makes you crave carbohydrates, especially the sugary ones. And so that also increases weight gain. And if you're sleeping less than seven hours a night, it makes you three times more likely to catch a cold. So there's a lot of good reasons to get sleep. And just a few things that John had brought up. I think the regimen is one of the biggest things that I stress with my patients as best as you can, waking up to an alarm the same time every day, getting to bed the same time the night before and allowing seven to eight hours on average. Yes. I mean, it's very simple. I guess I was surprised by how long he recommended going without food 
uh, or caffeine or exercise before bedtime. And I think people will realize that different rules apply to them to getting good sleep. But the biggest thing you don't want to cut, cut yourself short on is the quantity and the regularity. Oh, we're, we've come to an end of another episode. I love the little practical tidbits that uh, John gave us. So if you are tired during the day, and one of the things that I notice, because I have sleep apnea, uh, I can get by with a mouthpiece, which is wonderful. <laughs> My wife really appreciates that over the ocean sound of the CPAP machine, but was that I would almost fall asleep at a stoplight. Oh, that's bad. And, and I was actually going home after a morning of seeing patients. I was so tired I couldn't stay awake. That's why one of my patients called me at home who had been canceled two, two times in a row because I'd gone home sleepy. He said, Tom, you should be checked for sleep apnea. And he was absolutely right. So I owe that to <laughs> one of my patients who got bumped from my schedule due to my sleep apnea. Oh, my goodness. So we want to thank you listeners for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And we are brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio via the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen to iTunes or Google Play podcasts for past episodes. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing vaping, the new thing that's in all the news and the health risks with Dr. Eustace Fernandez, a pulmonologist from Fort Wayne, Indiana. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your question to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at redeemerradio.com doctor where you can also find all our past episodes. Keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app or by following us on Facebook at Dr. Doctor Show.